Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, the author of Priceless, Robert Whitman. Robert Whitman, author of Priceless. You're the founder of the FBI art crime team. How big a deal is art theft? Art theft is a, a very big problem around the world. Um, uh, the, you know, to look a, a little bit at the actual numbers of art and what, what it means, um, art is a $200 billion industry. Uh, and that means that $200 billion every year gets spent on, by people who are buying the artwork. In the United States alone, we, we account for about 40% of that, or $80 billion a year. So art is huge. I mean, it's a big, it's a big deal. You know, if you put that in perspective, the NFL uh, and the Major League Baseball together rank about $15 billion a year. Art is five times the size of both the NFL and, and Major League Baseball. So, uh, you know, when we say that, you know, we talk about art and the fact that art is unregulated. I mean, even, you know, if you look at Major League Baseball and uh, the NFL, they have commissioners, you know, who, who make rules. And there's a lot of rules that are followed. Same with real estate commissions, same with the SEC and the F FCC, all have regulatory bodies. Art has nothing. It's just basically a wild, wild west out there. So art crime is, is a rather large industry in the world. Uh, it's, it's considered about fourth. In the, uh, by Interpol as far as crimes are concerned, uh, about $6 billion a year. And it's one of the fourth largest international criminal activities. So it's a big deal. Now, in, in movies, you see art th thieves portrayed by people like Cary Grant. Um, right. You, yeah. Did you encounter anybody in your in your career doing this that was that kind of sophisticated? Well, we, you know, uh, we, we like to think, movies uh, portray a, a romanticized version of a lot of things. And they, they, like, they like to romanticize art theft because they, they like to portray uh, Pierce Brosnan as Thomas Crown and Cary Grant and like in Catch a Thief or, or Sean Connery with uh, in, in the movie Entrapment. And these are all stylized, romanticized uh, ideas of art thieves. Truthfully, uh, I've never actually seen that situation. The art thieves that I caught over the years, over 20 years of my career, were basically criminals who were, you know, either they were, some of them were in love with the art, but to the point where they would, they would still sell them. Others were uh, basically just criminals who were involved in many different criminal activities. Uh, art thieves are not necessarily art thieves. They, what they are are criminals who are doing many different things, auto theft, money laundering, drugs, selling drugs. Art just has to, happens to be a crime they just committed. So they're looking to sell the art and make money. That's, that's what it's about. It's all about making money. How'd you get involved with this? Uh, well, I was an FBI agent for 20 years. I retired in September 19, uh, 2008. I started in uh, 1988. And uh, when I first came to Philadelphia as an FBI agent, one of the first cases I was assigned was a theft from the Philadelphia uh, University of Pennsylvania Museum of Art, uh, I'm sorry, Anthropology and Archaeology. And that particular piece was a large crystal ball. It was the second largest crystal ball in the world. Uh, it was collected by the university back in the 1930s. It was owned by the Dowager Empress of China. And that particular piece was taken along with a 5,000-year-old Egyptian artifact, uh, a statue of the god Osiris. 
So when I first came to Philadelphia as an FBI agent, I was assigned that case. And I was assigned to work with an, another older agent who was uh, my trainer, my training agent. Uh, his name was Robert Bazin. And Bob was the art theft investigator for the Philadelphia office. So it was a natural situation where we worked together. Uh, we were able to recover that crystal ball. With, it took about two years, but we were able to recover that. Uh, and also the God Osiris. And um, at the same time, it just so happened that when I got here, there was another theft uh, right from the Rodin Museum in, in Philadelphia. And that was a famous sculpture by, the, uh, by Rodin, you know, the, the sculpture. And it was called The Mask of the Man with the Broken Nose. So again, in that particular case, Bob and I worked together and within six months, we were able to recover that piece and actually catch the thief. Uh, it was on, uh, I believe it was on Walnut Street. Uh, when we arrested him, he had the same pistol on him that he had had when he had done the, uh, actually the armed robbery of the museum. So uh, as a result of that, I was sent to the Barnes Foundation uh, in, in Lower Marion, where uh, I, was, I did a study of art history. And from there on out, for the next 18 years, I was involved in art theft investigations for the Bureau. Were you an art lover before you started this? Uh, not so much an art lover, but I did have a background in the business of art. Um, that's one of the things we, you know, I, I speak about in the book, is that there's two types of, of art uh, interest. One is the romantic, the romanticized history of the, of the artists themselves. And the and the and the uh, interest that people have when they look at art history and they think about you know that type of thing. The other is the business of art, and this is what we're talking about here. I mean, it's a huge business. So uh, when I was a young youngster, a young man, uh, my my parents were in the art and antiques business. My dad had antique stores in Baltimore, on Howard Street, and what he did was he sold Oriental art uh, at the time called Oriental now Asian art. Uh, actually Japanese ceramics uh, and, and prints uh, and pieces of that nature. So I grew up in the business. Uh, and that's how I you know, was able to be able to be in the business to know how to do an art deal. Because, you know, working undercover in the you know, organized crime area of art, it's all about making the art deal. You write a lot in the book about being undercover. What, do you remember the first time you went undercover in a case? Oh, sure. Case? Yeah, yeah. You, you always remember your first girlfriend and your first undercover. That's <laughs> the two things, maybe, huh? Um, oh, yeah. I, the first time I went, I really went undercover was in 1995. Um, uh, we got a call in the office in Philadelphia at the FBI uh, from one of the jewelers on Jewelers Row. An individual had gone into the, into the store and had bought uh, $10,000 worth of diamonds. And I uh, was asking at that point for another million dollars worth of diamonds, loose diamonds. And he explained that he was supposedly was a uh, operative for the CIA in Europe. And that was how he's going to pay his, quote, informants uh, in, in Europe with these loose diamonds. Well, something didn't sound right about that situation. So the jeweler was very smart and heads up. And he called the office. And I got the call. And he said, you know, is it, is it true? He showed me, a, you know, a badge. And he showed me a picture of himself with his CIA credentials. And I said, well... That's not true. That's not going to be. They, they don't walk around with the badges and CIA credentials when they do these things. And he would never have told you that. That doesn't sound right. So we did an undercover operation at that point where I posed as a, uh, uh, I guess, a courier to take the uh, diamonds and deliver them, okay, on Monday morning. This was, uh, this was a Thursday afternoon on Monday morning at a hotel on Roosevelt Boulevard in Philadelphia. And I had made contact with the individual. We had talked about these diamonds. Um, actually, in the end, it was about $15 million worth that he wanted. And uh, uh, so I, I created a situation where we got a number of CZs, you know, fake diamonds. And we put them together to make it look like it was real. 
we talked about it, and he asked me, are you, when you come, are you going to be wearing a, a handcuff? Are you going to have the briefcase handcuffed to your arm? And I said, yeah, I think I will. And, I, and it sounded a little strange to me that he would ask me that. But as it turned out, uh, so we thought about it, that we had everything set up. I went and did the uh, delivery on that, on that Monday morning, and uh, he came downstairs when I called him into the lobby. And he was wearing a heavy coat. And he was inside. He was in a room. So it was strange to me that he would be wearing a heavy coat. The idea was to go upstairs to his room and, and do this deal and, then, and, and catch him and see what was going on. So I got, I got a little bit, uh, uh, not afraid, but uh, alarmed by this heavy coat. So I called it in right then. And when we were walking through the lobby, the agents came in and, and pounced on him and were able to arrest him. And it was a good thing because he had a hatchet and he had a gun. <laughs> And the point was, he was going to take me up to his room. And remember, he asked me about the handcuff. Well, the hatchet was to cut the handcuff off, maybe cut my arm off, and try to steal the diamonds, the $15 million of diamonds that he thought he was going to have. He actually had $15 million in bearer bonds uh, that, were, that were fake. You know, they were all fake. But uh, that was the plan. And uh, it was, the idea was it was just simply a robbery. And that was what, what it was going to be. Uh, he was prosecuted, got five years in prison. That was my first undercover case, uh, working in that situation. One thing I learned from that was that uh, you don't want to do things on Monday morning because it gives you the whole weekend to sit and think about it. <laughs> you know? and it's, uh, it's better to do things quickly. I learned from, uh, let's see, you have the, uh, I don't know if I have it marked here, you say uh, there's two principal rules about uh, being undercover and uh, one is don't work in your own hometown and the other is, what is it about the name you used, what was, did you use the same name all the time? Well, you, you know, there are some rules, yeah. I mean, one of the rules that you, not a rule, but uh, one of the things I thought was important was always to use your real first name, uh, which is something I did throughout my career. It's not a rule, it's just what I do. Uh, and the reason for that is because, you know, uh, if you run into someone who knows you, uh, they might say, your first name. They might say Brian, hi Brian, or hi Bob. And in fact, it happened to me. And that stands, and you might be with people that you're, you're, you're uh, working undercover with or against. And so if that's the case, then it's not a mistake. You know, that's not going to, it's not going to be a, a, an alert to anyone. And it's easier to remember your first name. That's the main thing. Uh, the second part was, uh, oh, I did find it. Yeah? It's uh, keep the lies to a minimum. Exactly and uh, avoid working in your hometown. So did you use, is it Robert Clay was your? Yeah, Robert Clay was the name I used up until about 2001, right. And uh, yeah, that's, and, the, and the working in your hometown, I know many police officers who work narcotics and do those types of investigations can't do that because they're, they're local police officers and they have to stay within a designated area. So it must be very difficult for them. Uh, as an FBI agent, I made a, a fa you know a rule for myself not to work in Philadelphia. Um, you know, for long period of time, periods of time undercover because because I have family and I and I don't feel like it, I didn't feel like it was a necessity for me to do that, and because of the art business being international in, in scope, uh, many of the cases I did were all over the world. I was in 22 countries, uh, working in different ways, times. So it wasn't like uh, you know I had to stay in right in the Philadelphia area. Well, you write in the book about how <coughs> art theft and solving of art crimes really intrigues the media, and they want to yeah. cover these things. Um, so how would you work in a, in a field that got a lot of media attention without getting your name or your face associated? Well, okay, as, a, as, a, as an agent, as an undercover agent or any agent, um, you know, it's, it's not our place or my place to be in a spotlight. So I'm not the one uh, who was at the press conferences, you know, making the announcements of the recoveries. 
It's the, uh, the SACs, the special agents in charge, uh, their assistants, the, the management of the office, which is as it should be, because that's the political end of it, that's the administrative, and they're the ones who need to, you know, to be the ones who are designated the people who are talking to the press. So in those situations, you know, I would always be in the back of the room. You know, I would give the information, I'd brief the, uh, the SAC or brief the boss on what happened in the case, and then he would go out and do a good job of uh, putting it out to the press. And that would gain good public relations for our office, which is always a good thing because, you know, for me, the way it helped me was that it allowed me to do more cases. Uh, art theft is not a high priority in the FBI, and I understand that uh, property crime is not considered a very high priority. You know, the highest priorities are, are terrorism, the fight against terrorism, public corruption. These things are very important. Uh, property crime is a little bit lower on the scale. So therefore, you know, their, their support of my investigations into art crime uh, many times were dependent upon good public relations, good publicity for the office. So, you know, we kept trying to do that, and, and that worked out well. Did you, did you find sometimes that you thought it wasn't being taken seriously enough or, or the punishments were not fitting the crime because they thought, well, he just stole the painting? Well, the, you know, the punishment um, basically that's put out by the judges for sentencing is based upon dollar values. That's how the, the federal government, you know, determines what a, what a sentence is going to be. So, you know, if a certain amount of money has been taken or a certain piece of that value is taken, a number of points are assigned to that, and a number of points designate how many months in prison, you know, a perpetrator gets. So it wasn't my place to make that decision. Uh, many times, you know, I, I did investigations. Uh, I did the best I could, and I did my job, which is what, you know, which is what I was supposed to do. And then the prosecution was up to the U.S. Attorney's Office. It was, uh, that's, they did their job, and then the judges had to do their job at that point under you know, those situations and make that decision. So uh, you know, under our justice system, it wasn't my, my call. So I didn't have a whole lot to say about that. And you know, therefore, uh, if, if the Congress decided to make it more of a penalty, they could. You, know. you say in your book that 90% of art crimes are inside jobs. That's correct. Yeah, uh, you know it's an interesting statistic. Um, we did it. In, we actually did a, a, a study back in, a, in the late '90s, early 2000, of cases that were solved. Now, when I say that, I don't mean 90% of all our crime. It's 90% of the museum thefts. Okay, have some insider connection. Uh, and when we say insider connection, it doesn't always mean people who work there. It could also be people, individuals who are going in as experts, who go in study collections. Um, there was a very famous case just a few years ago, it's actually not in the book, but it involved an individual from Massachusetts who was a very, very well-known and respected map dealer. He dealt in antique maps. Uh, this individual, though, was caught at the Yale Library, okay, and what he did was he was actually coming out and he had a tube. He had dropped an exacto knife in the Yale Library rare book area. And one of the librarians saw the knife and thought, why would you have an X-Acto knife in the, in the, in the Yale Library where a book area? So they called the uh, campus police. He was caught. He actually had cut one of the maps out of the book. So for a number of years, he had been collecting these maps all over the world from different libraries, the British Library, the New York Public Library, the Yale Library, and a number of other ones stealing these pieces. And, and that does incredible damage because not only does it damage the, the, the map itself, it damages the book itself. And, and lowers the value of the book and does incredible damage to the book. So, uh, you know, that was an expert that was caught. There was another one who was going into Princeton, and he was studying uh, ivories, uh, Japanese ivories, called Neskes. And, and at that point, he was also caught after he had stolen a number that he had taken as well. So, uh, you know, these, these are the experts who are allowed 
into the museums, into the libraries, they have the keys to the kingdom, okay? And they're the ones, and that's what we mean by insider theft, people who are allowed in to, to have access to these pieces. You also write about, uh, speaking of experts, about the, the two people who were on Antiques Roadshow. Oh, right, right. Who had their own TV show, and you see them on TV, and they look credible, and mm -hmm. yet there was something else going on with it. Well, you know, that was a, that's a, that's a very complicated case. It's called the, it was the Antiques Roadshow case. And in that specific situation, well, just to, just to tell you, over my career, um, I think I had cases with uh, at least four <laughs> of the appraisers on the, on the Antiques Roadshow over time. Uh, I mean, first of all, the appraisers on the show are not really appraisers. They're dealers. And there's a difference between an appraiser and a dealer. And uh, that's, that's something that, you know, you have to look at right off the bat. Because most, generally speaking, appraisers are not going to sell your collection. They're going to come in, tell you what the values are, give you a third-party estimate, and, you know, and give you their best opinion. They're not going to be dealers selling your collection as well. So that's the first thing. But uh, in that particular case, these individuals went in. Uh, they were on the show early on. This is in the mid-90s when the show was just starting out. And uh, to, to understand the situation, you have to understand that the dealers who are on the show, they don't get paid to do that. They're not paid to be on the show. And in fact, they have to pay all of their expenses. So the travel, the hotels, the meals, everything that comes out of their pocket. And if they don't get a good piece that comes in the door, you know, to do a appraisal on in the show, they don't get on TV. So it, then at that point, it's a loss. You know, they, they can't do anything. They, they're not getting any publicity. So these individuals had decided that the way they, they could get things in the door would be to have their own friends bring pieces in that they gave to them to bring in, <laughs> you know. And they started, they set up a couple of sham uh, appraisals. But one of the appraisals became very famous. It was called the Watermelon Sword, and it was used over and over again. It was one of the first large uh, tens of thousand dollar items that came in that was discovered course it was a fake it was a real sword but it had been brought in by a friend of the appraiser in fact the guy was in his wedding so and they made it look like he was a complete stranger and they came up this with this uh, a completely uh, a fictitious story about where the sword came from and that was used to create the bona fides for these dealers and at that point they were in business and they started getting calls from all over the country of families who had heirlooms from civil war uh, you know, generals and colonels and officers. And the families were calling in to try to get pricing to see if these individuals could tell them what they were worth. And what they did was they were lowballing people and uh, basically committing uh, different types of mail fraud and wire fraud to acquire these, these artifacts and, you know, uh, defrauding the families. You tell a story about um, a, a sword that was owned by General Pickett. Right. And the family sold right. it, and it was the, uh, the Harrisburg Civil War Museum that right. got brought right. into it. And I want to read you this one sentence sure. you have in here about the, the mayor of Harrisburg was acquiring a connect collection for a new Civil War museum. The mayor expected to spend $14 million in acquisitions, enough money, as my prosecutor friend liked to say, to blind the conscience and steal the soul. Right, right. Yeah, my prosecutor friend's Robert Goldman. And uh, Bob and I worked together for almost my entire 20 years. He became the, uh, the first art crime team uh, uh, nationwide prosecutor for the FBI because of his background and his experience in these types of cases. Um, in fact, he would won awards from Peru, uh, the Distinguished Service Medal from Peru on a case that we worked together on, and a number of other, other uh, awards and whatnot for doing these types of cases. So yeah, Bob, that was one of the quotes that Bob had uh, often used. Uh, 
Uh, and I heard that and, and I agreed with them that uh, sometimes when people spend enough money, it does blind the conscience a little bit. So how would they lowball and, and make money off of that? Well, they would lowball. Well, what happened in that specific case is they lowballed the Pickett family, okay, told them that they were representing the museum and said they were the actual representatives of the museum and that the museum was going to pay X amount of dollars. And that's all they would offer because that's all they could do. And they were getting a 10% cut, you know, from that. That was their, what they were going to be making. And then they turned around and they, they charged the museum 10 times what they paid uh, for the pieces. So they, you know, the difference was, you know, $800,000 versus eighty. At and what point is that fraud and at what point is just shrewd buying and selling? Well, when you use, uh, well, okay, when you use the mails and you send letters uh, that are fraudulent, that are fake, that are lies through the mail to uh, convince someone to do something, then uh, if it can be shown that these are, these are fraudulent letters, these are fraudulent claims, then it's mail fraud. And that's what happens. It's the use of the mail to further a conspiracy to defraud someone. How often were you in a situation where you had a suitcase full of money and the art was there and the bad guys were there and you were in a hotel room and the doors burst open and it was the FBI coming in? Uh, how many times? Was that a regular uh, thing? Uh, that really pretty operate? regular, yeah. <laughs> pretty much. It wasn't always the FBI. I mean, one time it was the Danish National Police. Another time it was a SWAT team from the Spanish National Police in Madrid. Uh, it depends on where I was, you know, that's who would, would burst in, and, and oftentimes it was the FBI, so a number of times. How do you stay calm when you know that's about <clears throat> to happen? Well, you know, you're a professional, uh, you know, as, as what we do for a living. Uh, you know, you, you, when, you, when you join up with the FBI or any law enforcement agency, you know, you put up your hand and you swear to, to uphold the Constitution and the oath, the off, oath of your office, and you're a professional. So, you know, that's what you do, and you accept it. And I used to say, you know, I remember the first time I was in Philadelphia and I was getting ready to do a drug bust on Roosevelt Boulevard, it was. And it was 6 o'clock in the morning, and uh, I was the first guy in the front door. And uh, my partner, uh, Tom Whitman, he, he had a, a sledgehammer. He was getting ready to break the door in. And it was the first case I was involved with. And uh, I was the first guy in the door on this drug house. Well, he hits the door, and it doesn't open. And he hits it again, and it, again, it doesn't open. I had four or five locks on it. Finally, he smacked it hard enough with the sledgehammer that it went. But by then, of course, you know, all that noise, I'm thinking everybody's awake. So I go in the door, and, and all I'm thinking is, well, you know, you put your game face on, and you go. And that's what you have to do. I mean, it's just like uh, anything else. You forget about what, what could happen, what might happen, and all that. You put your game face on. This is what you swore to do. This is your oath, oath of office, and you move. And you just go do what you have to do. Uh, in that case, it was interesting. They had put a, a, a couch in front of the door. And it was dark. So when I went in, I just tumbled right over the couch with a shotgun. <laughs> and luckily, nothing happened, you know. And, and, and they hadn't woken up with all that noise. They were still all sleeping on the floor. So uh, it worked out fine. Uh, Why did you become an FBI agent in the first place? You, you know, uh, I think it's because uh, when I was younger, uh, a child in, in the 60s, I grew up uh, in two ways. My, my mother was Japanese, and my dad... Uh, he met her during the Korean War. He was in the Air Force, and he actually had served in the Navy in World War II and was on a, on a light cruiser in the Pacific you know, and fought the Japanese, interestingly enough. And my mom, of course, was in Japan. Uh, her brothers were on the Japanese side. It's almost like a Civil War story, you know, from, from the Civil War because you have the, the, the North and the South. Well, this was the, the Japanese in the United States. And, but in, in this particular case, my dad met her in, a, in, in the early 1950s uh, during the Korean War, married her, 
and uh, came back and lived in Baltimore. And and as a young young person uh, in the early uh, 1960s, I mean, there was a certain amount of prejudice, you know, against the Japanese and and that type of thing. And I saw my mom go through a little bit of that. Uh, I remember walking with her um, hand in hand as a very young child, and you know, people across the street yelling things like Jap and that type of thing. And she just kept her head up, kept going straight. And it wasn't. You know, it wasn't awful or anything like that, and we, we loved the United States, always loved the United States, but I remember hearing that and thinking, you know, that's, that's a prejudice, you know, and it's, it's a civil rights situation. And then I remember watching the uh, FBI story with Ephraim Zimbalist Jr. in the 60s, and, and I kind of got the idea at that point that, that, you know, that's something I'd like to do, was being an FBI agent. And then we had an FBI agent who lived across the street, Mr. Gordon, Walter Gordon was his name, in the Baltimore office. Great guy, and uh, he was the coolest guy I knew <laughs> when I was uh, at that age. And I thought, you know, that's something I'd like to do, uh, and try out for, and get into. And I thought it'd be a great job, and uh, it was. It was. But I'll tell you what: when I uh, was first coming into the bureau in 1988, I was with the recruiter in Baltimore. His name was Gary, and Gary says to me, "Yeah, it's a great job." He says, "You know, you could be like on an Indian reservation, or you could be out west. <clears throat> you could be in a high-powered car." You'd have a shotgun. You'd be the only law for 20 miles around. I said, wow, that's pretty interesting. You know, what an interesting thought. So they sent me to Philadelphia. <laughs> I was one of 10,000 policemen. You know? But uh, it worked out fine. Well, you, you got the job. You responded to an ad in the paper saying FBI agents wanted? Yeah, my wife showed me an ad in the paper. And uh, one day she, there was a job, and uh, she said, look at this job. And I said, looked at it, and it was an ad in the, in the newspaper, our local, uh, actually it was a county paper. And uh, so I called. Uh, I thought, okay, you know, let's see what this is about. And I basically had to take a test. And I kind of kept it quiet because I didn't, you know, I, I figured if I got in, then that would be good. And if I didn't, then nobody would know that I didn't, <laughs> you know. Uh, so I called and I, I took the test and uh, I passed the test, the original test. And then we, uh, I told my wife and we started working out because that was the next thing. Uh, you had to be able to do a certain amount of physical uh, uh, prowess and exercise uh, to pass to get in. So we started our workouts, and for the next year or so, I did that. And within, I guess, seven months, I was in the uh, in the academy. How old were you when you went to the academy? Thirty-two. Is that a little old for uh, starting? It's actually not. Uh, Twenty-eight to thirty-two is about the age. Um, the average age in the academy is about thirty years old. So it's not a, a young. It's not a twenty-three-year-old. You can be twenty-three and get in, but generally they like people with more more life experience uh, before they accept you. And you have to have three years actual work experience and a professional nature to be able to get in. So the, the general age at that point was about 30 years old. What's the academy like? Uh, it, it's, a, it's a very interesting place. You know, they, 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 call, they call it, uh, they have these like what they call gerbil tunnels. Uh, so you never really have to go outside at all except to do uh, defensive, well, actually for, uh, except for firearms training. So uh, it's, a, it's a great spot. They, do, they have three different courses of study, at least when I went. I remember this is 20 years ago. So they had uh, physical training, what they call defensive tactics and physical PTDTs. Uh, that's where you learn to fight and protect yourself and physical training to be in shape. Then they also had uh, school book learning, which would be legal exercises, uh, what, the, what the specific laws were that were investigated by the FBI. And then they had firearms, which is uh, another course of study. With Three times a week you'd go out and you'd uh, have to qualify on a range, and they would basically teach you how to shoot. Well, you said during all your years on the art theft team, you never carried a gun. Well, yeah, what, uh, what I meant with uh, when I said that, I'm an undercover. Uh, when I worked undercover, 
I didn't carry a weapon. Mm. And the reason for that, I, I just thought your best weapon undercover is your own, is your mouth, you know, your, your, your speaking ability and your mind. Um, I, I never thought that carrying a gun was a good idea because that raises the level up of violence. So I, I wasn't uh, one of the ones who was interested in doing that. But I carried a gun every day in Philadelphia in between being undercover. Uh, I wasn't undercover every moment. You know, I was working other cases as well. I ran a jewelry theft task force out of Philly uh, that was investigating a group of uh, individuals. In fact, we arrested over 100 people in that task force that were going out and doing actual smash and grab robberies of jewelry stores all over the country. So uh, that was another, and in that particular case, I wasn't undercover and I did carry a gun for those, for those arrests. While you were undercover, was there ever a time you slipped up or you said something that's like, oop, hopefully I didn't catch that one? There was one occasion, uh, you know, you do that occasionally. I remember one time I was uh, signing a check for a, a luncheon. I had taken uh, our target out for lunch and uh, we were discussing our business deals. And uh, when the check came, you know, I had a credit card and I gave the, paid it with a credit card. And instead of signing Robert, whatever my last name was supposed to be, I signed it Robert Whitman. And I was like, well, how do you change that <laughs> on your credit card? I mean, you know, the, the, the waiter's sitting there, and he's going to be thinking, well, you don't know your own last name, you know? So it was kind of a, a hairy moment, so to speak, uh, to switch that around. And I'll, I'll never forget another time in Madrid, we were working on a case involving $50 million worth of paintings, which had been stolen from an apartment in, in Madrid. Uh, inc included two Goyas, uh, uh, Bruegel, uh, uh, Fujita paintings, some wonderful pieces, about 17 paintings all told. And uh, in that particular case, there was a meeting with the, uh, the thieves, and we were sitting in the, in the Melita Castilla Hotel in downtown Madrid. It's about 2 o'clock in the morning, and we're sitting at the table, and at that point, they wanted to show me what paintings they had to sell me. So we were making that deal. It was uh, for $10 million to buy the paintings from them. And uh, I pulled out the, the paintings, the pictures of the paintings I had had, because I had downloaded them off of the FBI website. Well, that's because they were, they were all up there. They were all posted as stolen property, and it was the best place to go get good pictures. So I had cut off all the, all the identifiers you know, from the pages. But as I went through them, the, the, the criminal looked at me, and he smiled, and he says, oh, FBI. He knew that those pictures had come off the FBI website because of the formatting. Well, that was interesting in a lot of ways. I mean, number one, it showed me that the criminals are watching exactly who's looking for them. Okay, they know. They're checking the emails, they're checking the internet to see what's going on as well. But at that moment, too, it was a very uh, scary moment when he, when he said FBI, because that's the three letters I didn't want to hear <laughs> you know, at that time. So I said, yeah, download for pictures. He says, yeah, best place, best place. Okay? He didn't speak really good English, but he, it was good enough to, oh yes, it's the best place to get pictures. <laughs> Close. What's the most amount of money, cash, you ever carried to, uh, to one of these operations? Well, you know, I had, uh, I, I had access to millions, uh, you know, through bank accounts and, and different, different ways of showing that I had millions. But the most amount of cash I ever had was $250,000 in, in $100 bills. How big is that? Uh, it's about the size of a briefcase. You know, uh, a small briefcase. It's not too unwieldy. Uh, it's, it's, it's a lot, but it's not as big as you think. Uh, oh, you know what? When we say cash now, that's a mistake, okay? 250000 in U.S. dollars. Now, another time, for that case, I had 500,000 euros. Okay, now that's the size of, a, of an athletic case filled up. Uh, and in that, in that case in Madrid, because, you know, Spain is on, works under the euros, that was 500,000 euros, which is about, I don't know, maybe uh, $700,000, $650,000.
Yeah. Can you describe a case about how you would, first of all, find out that art was missing and think that maybe these guys had it, or how you would ingratiate yourself to the thieves so they... Sure. Well, how you, how you th those are, every case is different. Every situation is going to be different. I talk about probably 12 or 13 different cases in, in the book in Priceless, and, uh, and you'll see as you read the book, each one I go through the beginning stages and how we got involved in the case. And so the ingratiation process is different every time. It depends on how you get into what you're getting into. It's either by the vouch or the bump. That's what we called it. Uh, a vouch is when someone takes you in and vouches for you. And I say, we know this guy. Uh, he's, he's a legitimate dealer. Uh, he's, a, he's into the criminal arts side of the market. He's got the money. He can play the game. That's a vouch. A bump is when you don't have that. You have no one vouching for you. So you have to go in cold and just act like you're bumping into something, all right, and creating that interest. And that's a different kind of, uh, uh, different kind of ingratiation technique. In any event, you, you, there's still techniques that you use. Once you get into the, uh, past the original bump or vouch stage, then there's a number of different uh, interview techniques and ways of uh, ingratiating individuals to want to work with you. Because what you have to do in an undercover uh, situation is have someone want to be able to, want to do business with you in, in criminal activity. And it's very, sometimes it's very difficult to make that happen. And there's different techniques that you can use to make that happen. I talk about those in the book as well. Now, would you be posing as a go-between to a rich person who wanted to buy it, or and and would they be the people who actually had the paintings, or would they be go-betweens? Uh, <clears throat> they work both ways. Oftentimes, I did work uh, with go-betweens, but the point there was to get past the go-between. You try to do that as quickly as possible and get right to the target. All right, and that, that's the idea. And as far as me, I, I would pose as I posed as a authenticator for the for organized crime. You know, as, a, as an art expert authenticator, I posed as an actual dealer, okay, who was trying to do shady deals. I posed as a professor, you know, uh, of art who was interested in a specific type of artwork. So it depended, and I also posed as a, you know, a, a buyer who knew nothing, and therefore it was an easy target to be made into. So it all depended on what the specific type of case was and what I was supposed to be doing in that particular case. Generally speaking, I tried not to be the buyer because uh, that makes it difficult. Because if you're the buyer, then there's no reason why you just don't pay the money right away. Uh, if you can kind of stay away from that specific job, that specific uh, storyline, it's better off. But sometimes I was, depending on the situation. How did the, your whole career turn into a book? How did you decide to write a book about it? Well, I, I found that, uh, again, we had talked earlier a little bit about the fact that you know, art crime and property crime is a low priority the FBI for, for uh, most, most police departments. And I feel that art crime is much, should be a little bit higher priority. Uh, you know, I understand that, you know, a, a stolen car is one thing, but it's a big difference between a Chevrolet and a Monet, okay? And it's not just the money. It's, it's also the fact that, you know, the, the Chevrolet is replaceable, the Monet may not be. You know, these paintings, these artworks, these sculptures, uh, they're pieces of cultural history and heritage that, you know, belong to all of us in the world not just in countries or museums or libraries or, or a specific gallery or person. They belong to all of us. They're all pieces of, of human genius that, that, you know, that we can all enjoy and learn from. And I just felt that, uh, you know, the book, I thought it would be a way to get out there and try to bring uh, some of this interest and some of this knowledge to the general public. So I tried to write a book that was not an art history book. It's not a, you know, it's, a, not a, it's not a tome. It's not one of these, you know, large art history books talking about the artists' lives. 
and that type of thing. And it's not a true crime book either. It's not a dime nickel, you know, dime store novel. What it is, I tried to make a, a book that, that, that bridged that gap, okay, to the general public, so they would look at it and be entertained, enjoy it, but maybe even learn something, you know, and, and, and a little bit about art and about, about how we do these investigations and how important it is to conserve, to protect, and, be, and have our art be secure. And that's, that's kind of what I wanted to do. Who buys stolen art? Well, that's a great question. Um, from my experience, uh, for 20 years, it was the police. <laughs> <You know? laughs> uh, people always ask me, you know, what's a, what's a wonderful stolen painting worth? And I always tell them it's worth about five to ten in federal prison. That's, <laughs> that's the answer to the question. And, and as I said, I've found many times that, you know, the true art in an art heist is not the stealing. It's the selling. Okay? It's, you can steal it, but what are you going to do with it afterwards? And that's always been the problem for these, for these criminals. Uh, we usually recover these pieces when they come back to market. And what we mean by that is either through auction many years down the road, or a third party gets it, tries to sell it, doesn't know it's stolen, or when they try to sell it to the police, you know, like we did. So uh, it's really difficult to sell the art, and that's always a problem. So what do they do with it? Uh, one of the things that they do with it, they being the criminals, is they steal the artwork, not so much in the States, because it doesn't work for them, but in, in Europe. They'll steal the artwork, they maintain it. If they can sell it, they will, if they can try to move it, but usually they can't because I know, because I was working undercover for two years in France, I found that one, at one point they were offering me 75 stolen paintings from all over the country, you know, that they had had. What they do is they hold it until something else happens. In other words, they get caught doing another crime. And then at that point, they bring it out and they use it as a get-out-of-jail-free card. And they try to, try to give it, you know, to the police or, or whatever, make a deal to get a lesser sentence for the return of the paintings. So it's basically a, a it's, it's an insurance policy. Did you come across any situations where, <clears throat> where there was a very famous painting that some Bond villain type guy kept behind a secret wall nah, in their house? I call it the Dr. No theory, you know? <laughs> That's that famous movie from 1962 um, uh, where Dr. No has the painting inside, inside his cave and James Bond walks by and goes, oh, I wonder what happened to that because it had just been stolen from the Albert Victoria Museum or something. Um, <clears throat> I never saw that. I, I should check that. I never saw it in that kind of situation where, you know, uh, you see this mastermind criminal with, who's doing all kinds of other activity. He's got one painting that he loves that he kept in his cave, okay? There was a case, though, um, where an individual uh, in Philadelphia was basically uh, involved with another person for stealing these historic items. Uh, the Historical Society of Pennsylvania had a problem in the late 90s where um, they, they were missing three fabulous presentation swords owned by three of the generals at the Battle of Gettysburg, General Meade, Humphreys, and Bernie. Uh, these swords together were worth in the, in the range of $700,000, and they went missing. So the, the chief uh, collections manager called us, the FBI, and said, you know, we're, we're missing these pieces. Can you come in and talk to us about it and help us out? So we went and did the investigation. Robert Goldman and myself actually went there, and we found that they were missing. Uh, eventually, we were able to trace them to a collector in Delaware County, PA, who had uh, a raw home there. We went upstairs to his, into his home and opened the door, and he had knocked out one of the walls of the two, two bedrooms that were together, knocked out one of the walls. And when you walked in there, Brian, it was one of the best uh, military museums in the country. When we looked around and saw what he had, over the course of seven years, he had paid money to one of the janitors at the museum, 
at one piece at a time, he was stealing them. He had stolen more than 200 items, you know, including these three swords. All these pieces were missing. So uh, it was December the 23rd. I'll never forget calling the, uh, the collections manager. Her name was Kristen. And I said, Kristen, uh, do you believe in Santa Claus? And she said, you found the swords, didn't you? I said, and a few more things. So she came down right away and uh, started cataloging. And in the end, we had more than $2.5 million worth of artifacts that were stolen from the museum over the course of seven years. And, and it included pieces like John Brown's rifle that he carried at Harper's Ferry, the, of course, the presentation swords of George Meade from the Gattle, <clears throat> Battle of Gettysburg. Uh, it, there was a, a ring there that was owned by a lieutenant <clears throat> from the Navy with a lock of George Washington's hair in it. And he was killed in the Barbary Wars as well as uh, a tea caddy that was actually with George Washington at Valley Forge. So this was, you know, immensely historic material. And the museum didn't miss it? Well, they had a lot of pieces. And a lot of, these, a lot of the pieces were little, you know, buttons and that type of thing as well. So, you know, over the, unless you look at this stuff every day, you know, you're not going missing a, miss a piece one by one over the course of a long period of time. Um, they did a great job. They came forward. They talked about it. They got a good security system in, is what they set up. And uh, quite honestly, they, did, they made the best of it. And uh, I, I give them 100% credit for that, because that's one of the biggest problems, is that when there is a theft from a museum, many times the museums don't want to publicize it. They just kind of want to put it under the table because they don't want anyone to know about it. It hurts their credibility. It could hurt their donor, donors in the future. So they kind of whitewash things. And unless it's reported, we can't get it back. So we need to have that reportage done. And, and the museum at the HSP did a great job of doing that. And they stood up and they got a new, new security section and collection and they got their material back. So it was a good thing. Well, without giving away too many secrets, well, mm -hmm. what kind of security does art, do art museums have? I mean, you see, again, in the movies, you see the lasers <laughs> that are going all over yeah. and, and alarms if you lift the painting off the wall. I always love that one from the Thomas Crown Affair where he goes <laughs> in, you know, and the, and the walls close together over the paintings. <laughs> uh, I hate to tell you, that doesn't exist. <laughs> that doesn't happen. Uh, most museums have very good intru intrusion systems. They have good alarm systems. Uh, in the United States, uh, the, the larger ones do. Now, some of the smaller, you know, uh, historical societies may not have as, quite as much, uh, and security is a very important factor. Um, I think a lot of times, though, security is is forgotten about a little bit, or it's actually uh, relegated downward because of the fact that it, they think it costs money. You know, it doesn't it doesn't help the bottom line with security, but you need it because in the end, if you can stop a theft, it does it, it makes you money, <laughs> it saves you money. Um, so security is very important. I know in Europe, security is difficult because the, the houses and the museums there are so old that the structures uh, basically block good security systems. So just back in, in May, I, can, I remember there was five paintings that were stolen from the uh, Museum of Modern Art in Paris. Wonderful pieces worth $123 million. And in fact, uh, individuals went in in the middle of the night. They basically cut one lock opened a window and went and took the pieces out. And the alarms weren't working, okay? And, and the cameras were not positioned correctly. So in that situation, you know, the country of France at this point has lost five wonderful paintings. Picasso, Matisse, Modigliani, very famous pieces that are gone. They're still missing. They're still missing, yeah, $123 million worth. And, in, and also in August, just, it just so happened that uh, there was an individual went into the museum, the Khalil Museum in Egypt, in Cairo, and stole a Van Gogh. Literally got up on a couch, cut the Van Gogh out of the frame value of $50 million. None of the alarm systems in the museum were working. 
Okay, they'd all been broken. Not because of this person. In other words, it wasn't planned that way. It just wasn't working. So that goes to show we need good security, and I think it's a very big issue in museums around the world. The U.S. is pretty good. We have a different situation. Our, our country's younger. Our, our buildings are, are more suited for good security systems. The, the police are very, very active. And every state has you know, miss many, many municipal, local, state police uh, groups. Uh, and it's very difficult to travel uh, anywhere outside the U.S. with the paintings. So where are you going to go, from Philly to Camden? You know, it's not going to work. Uh, but when you get into Europe, because of the proximity of countries, because of the, uh, the ancient buildings, very difficult situation. Now you said you worked in 22 different countries during your career right. with the FBI. How, how would you get called into a, an international art theft situation? Well, when we, uh, when we did cases, say, in Peru or Brazil, or uh, well, Brazil was our, 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 our uh, paintings, but uh, in France or, or Madrid or whatever, it was because uh, we were doing foreign police cooperation. Uh, we cooperate with police from many different countries, most countries throughout the world. The idea is if we help them, they help us. So, you know, if we uh, developed a lead, and oftentimes we would in the U.S., uh, about where something would be, say, in another country, we'd contact that country, that, that, those, uh, those police officers in that situation, and we would work with them. And many times buyers in Europe were happy to sell to a collector or a buyer or authenticator from the U.S., the idea being getting it, getting it out of the country. So, uh, uh, you know, they, they, they still believe that uh, the U.S. is uh, the biggest art market in the world, $80 billion, and that, uh, you know, we Americans are, are willing to buy these things. So that's how it worked out. But we were doing it as a cooperative uh, effort with foreign police departments. Were there some foreign police departments that are notoriously difficult to deal with? Uh, when you say notoriously, I, <laughs> I wouldn't use that word. Uh, there's some departments that are difficult to deal with. Not always, it's not because of the police officers at that level. Uh, sometimes it's because of the laws of the country. You know, there's certain countries where it's illegal to do undercover work. And you just can't do it. It's not allowed. Uh, there's other countries where certain types of undercover work are, are legal, but not property crime. So since, since artwork is considered property, those, you know, going undercover in those countries is not considered a legal activity, so you can't do it. So it depends on what country it is. It's not, it's not the human factor. It's not the police officers themselves, because all of the police officers around the world are after the same thing, which is to try to recover this material and, and the justice. But it depends on what the laws are within the different nations. You also write in your book about uh, theft of antiquities, and, and well, at what point is it grave robbing, and at what point is it archaeology? Oh, well, well, I think there's, there's a big difference. I mean, uh, when we talk about grave robbing, we're talking about looting. Um, and that's, that's when, you know, individuals who are not licensed, who are not scientists, go into an area. They, they basically take poles and stick them into the ground until they find something, dig it out completely, and just steal the pieces that are, quote, of value. That's grave robbing and looting. Uh, archaeologists, it's an entirely different situation. They're going to go in, they're going to map out the area, and it's not, they're not looking for valuable items. They're looking for all items, okay? And the idea is to learn more about the culture, learn about the burial situation, the systems, uh, maybe learn something about uh, these cultures that we didn't know before because many times they, they didn't leave written languages and that way they could uh, discuss, find these things and, and determine what they're about. It's a, it's a, it's a science versus a, a theft and it's two different things. Uh, and, that's, it's, and that's the problem with looting, when that occurs. When someone goes into a tomb in Peru or in, in Thailand or wherever and steals 
from the tomb. It destroys the evidence, the evidence of the culture. So that archaeologists then can't go in and learn anything. Everything's been disturbed and taken out of context. At that point, those wonderful items that are taken from that tomb are nothing but, but they're just cheap baubles. I mean, they're, they're just golden objects with no archaeological history or scientific knowledge about them. So that's, that's the real damage it's done. It's, it's, it's not only just the theft, it's the damage to our human culture and what we can learn about it. You also write about baseball cards. You mentioned baseball cards <laughs> yeah, in there. Sure. Did you come across some situations with stolen baseball cards? I, I just wish I had my baseball cards from when I was a kid. Uh, I'll tell you, I grew up in Baltimore. I just collected the Baltimore Oriole cards and Brooks Robinson and all those guys. And uh, I just wish I had them. Um, the truth is, though, I never would have thought, you know, at any point that, you know, baseball card, a baseball card could be worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. And that's what's happened to our society to a certain degree. You know, we, we are so in love with nostalgia in this country that we make these things, we make nostalgia valuable. So, you know, a little tiny baseball card from the 19th or Ty Cobb baseball card could be worth, you know, half a million dollars. And it's just amazing to me that that's the case. Uh, again, <clears throat> because of the value, it creates criminal activity. And that's how we got involved in baseball cards. Uh, criminals were stealing baseball cards, faking them, you know, uh, making uh, copies and selling them as real. Those are all frauds and they become federal violations in the use of the telephone, the wires, and the mail. How often did you come across a, an art theft and you looked at how the criminal did it and that thought, boy, that was clever? Oh, <clears throat> I have a couple of times. Again, I always say the art and the art theft that was not in the stealing, it's in the selling. So however clever they were when they stole it, they got caught when they sold it, <laughs> okay? One of the best was uh, a case I did in 2005. It was involving uh, three individuals at that point, but. Earlier on in 2000, uh, these individuals went into the Swedish National Museum in Stockholm. It was December 23rd, it was five o'clock in the evening. Three guys went into the museum and they had machine guns. They put everybody on the floor. They ran through the museum and they stole three paintings, two by Renoir, one by Rembrandt. The three paintings themselves were $42 million. Now, as they were doing that, they set off two car bombs outside the city of Stockholm, which blocked the main roads leading to the museum which was on a small peninsula leading into the river. So there was no access for emergency vehicles to come. When they made their getaway, they made their getaway in a speedboat. That's when they went into the river because they couldn't back, go back onto the uh, roads. Is that a good heist? It's, it's a good Hollywood heist. You know, mm -hmm. machine guns, car bombs, uh, speedboats. But of course, they made one big mistake. Uh, when they pulled over off the boat to get off to get into their van with the paintings, an individual saw them, got the number of the boat, and the next day they called, contacted the police. The police found out that, yeah, that when they spoke to the person who owned the boat, yeah, these guys had bought it and they had paid cash, they'd done the right thing, but they left a real cell phone number. And so that was the mistake. So the police were able to identify the gang through the cell phone number. So it just goes to show, I mean, even though they do a great job with the heist, they still did it, made a mistake in the end that, uh, that brought them to the light you know, of the police. Well, it took us five years. We ended up getting all the paintings back. And uh, Rembrandt, of course, we recovered in an uh, undercover operation in, in, in Copenhagen, where I was, I was an authenticator for the uh, or Eastern Organized Crime Group, uh, sometimes called the Russian mob, but we wanted to say the Eastern Organized Crime Group. And what I was doing there, I was an authenticator for them and trying to buy that painting for them. And they, they brought it to me. It was a $35 million <clears throat> Rembrandt, uh, and we were able to recover that. So, uh, but I thought that was a very, very, very good, well-executed uh, crime. But of course, in the end, they were caught when they tried to sell it. 
Are there any that you, you tracked down for a while and you, you thought you had a beat on them and, and somehow at the last minute the sellers got cold feet and you, like the ones that got away? Well, you know, throughout my career, I was very lucky with that. Uh, uh, you know, we, and I say lucky, not smart, <laughs> lucky. Uh, we, we did recover almost everything that we went after. Um, in the end, though, uh, there were two pennies. There was a Vermeer and a Rembrandt that we were looking for for about two years uh, that we were trying to get back that we were, we just couldn't, just didn't work out. Instead, we got four paintings from that were stolen from the museum in Nice, France, uh, two Bruegels, a Sicily and a Monet. And a Sicily, by the way, is back in the Musée d'Orsay, so anybody who wants to go see can go, it's, it's back there. Uh, and also two Picassos that were stolen from the granddaughter of uh, Pablo Picasso, uh, valued at over $60 million. In that case, we got those back. Well, we couldn't get back to Vermeer and a Rembrandt, uh, which were close and dear to my heart because they were two pieces that were stolen from the Isabella Stuart Gardner Museum in 1990, uh, which still stands today as the largest single uh, art heist in history. And in fact, uh, I believe it's the largest single property crime in U.S. history. In other words, it worth $300 million at the time, today up to $500 million. And there is a $5 million reward for information uh, about where these paintings are today. Uh, what happened was in 1990, two individuals dressed as Boston police officers went to the Isabella Stuart Gardner Museum in Boston. They made their way in, uh, they tied the guards up, and for over an hour they went around the museum and stole 13 objects of art, took them with them, uh, included a Rembrandt seascape, it's called the Storm Over the Sea of Galilee, it's the only one that's known, seascape that he did, and a uh, Vermeer called The Concert, considered a masterpiece. It's the only missing Vermeer in the world. Uh, so these pieces are out there, and uh, that's, that's something where the, the FBI and uh, the individuals in Boston are still looking for. Are there any that you sort of had a good idea where they might be but couldn't quite put your finger on them? Well, it's my, it's my belief they're in France, those particular paintings. Um, I believe they're in France and that they're being held at this point. Uh, not by the people who stole them. This was 20 years ago. But now by people who, who have them, okay? And that's something that's interesting too, Brian. It, it, you know, uh, many of the cases I did, some of them were 20 years after the theft. Uh, one case I talk about in the book was an uh, original copy of the Bill of Rights. And that was the oldest theft I'd ever gotten involved with. Um, it's an interesting story. In 17, I think 87 or 89, one or the other, uh, George Washington sent 13 copies of the Bill of Rights. Now, these are not a copy. These are originally handwritten pieces done by Washington's scribe to the different states, the 13 states. And he kept one for the federal government. And this was, uh, you know, these were the amendments to the Constitution. Well, the states were supposed to ratify them and send them back, signed. Well, the states didn't do that. They ratified them, but they kept them. And, and that was because it was part of their history, and they wanted to keep them for posterity. Well, this particular one was stolen in 1865. It was from the state of North Carolina when a Union trooper went into the State House of Raleigh. He was coming back with Sherman's troops during the Civil War. They took North Carolina. He went into the State House and took the Bill of Rights at States. Took it to Indiana, sold it for five dollars. Well, we recovered that in 2003. 153 years later, or 145 years later, uh, as it was trying to be sold to the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia for four million dollars. So as a result of the theft from 1865, we recovered it for the state of North Carolina in 2003. That was the oldest. <laughs> there's, no, there's no time limit at which I've had it this long, it's mine now? Well, you know, there are good faith buyer statutes and laws and whatnot, but when something is stolen, it's very difficult to be able to try to trade, trade uh, good title to it. 
And you know, they're, they're, I'm not an attorney, so I, I can't give legal advice about that. But I can tell you that you know, if it's stolen, then at that point, you don't have legal title, which makes it very difficult to transfer that legally. That's why if someone steals your car and we find it 10 years later, it's still your car. Even though it's been sold a few times, you know, the people who sold it didn't have good title. So that's the problem. Well, if someone wants to buy art or sell art or a museum, how do they know they're dealing with a legitimate dealer and buying something that hasn't been sold? That's a really good question. That's really important, too. Um, you know, you must do your due diligence. As a buyer, okay, it's, it's, a, it's incumbent upon you to make sure that you buy from the correct people. Uh, if you're going to buy at auction, make sure you read the small print and that you're buying what you think you're getting. Yeah, the, the art business, you know, theft is one problem, but fraud is a much bigger problem. It's a much larger situation, and many more people are affected by that. Uh, what happens is people think they're going to get a good deal. And what I always say is if it's too good to be true, it's not. Okay, I'm just telling you straight up, it's not true. Uh, I, I can't tell you how many people come to me and say, you know, I bought this Picasso for $2,000 uh, on the Internet, and they're not real. They're not real. If it says if it says Picasso on the auction site, make sure it says Pablo and not Tony Picasso. Okay, <laughs> just be careful. And and this is a great place to tell people: do not you know buy unless you know who you're buying from, and that you have total faith in that dealer. And then that dealer should offer a money back guarantee uh, for authenticity as well. So those things are very very important. Uh, and also you, you need to know that the piece that you're getting has good title. You know the person who's selling it to you can do so, okay, and have transfer that good title to you. So if you're going to spend a lot of money, uh, you know, whatever that is to a person, you should do a title search to make sure that it has good provenance so that you're not buying something that's got, you know, got a problem in its past. It's because, uh, you know, if you're the one who holds it, doesn't mean you might, it doesn't mean you, you could go to jail or anything like that for holding the property, but you could lose your money, okay? That's what could happen to you. So, you know, it's very important to do due diligence, to, to know where you're buying from, and uh, if you're going to make a large acquisition, I'd also recommend that you get uh, title insurance. Uh, you know, there are companies out there that do that, that offer title insurance. Uh, people buy houses, and they spend hundreds of thousands of dollars, and they can't buy the house unless they own title insurance. Well, people spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on artwork, and they won't do the same thing. Well, it's just as valuable. So, you know, I would suggest that people get that as well. We are out of time. We've been speaking with Robert Whitman, the founder of the FBI art crime team, <clears throat> about his book, Priceless, How I Went Undercover to Rescue the World's Stolen Treasures. Thank you very much. Thank you, Brian. Thank you for being here. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details. Like us on Facebook.